Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Bright and early this morning. As we got a flavor of last night during the conversation with DPM Tarman, Singapore confronts a very difficult issue, a very complex one, and that's of uh, growing inequality. Uh, the first question is, uh, is it a problem? Is it all right to have a high Gini coefficient or other measures of uh, the gap between the rich and poor? Or is it acceptable so long as we have eliminated abject poverty and have a system which allows for considerable social mobility, the escalator that uh, DPM spoke about? If it is a problem, what is the scale of the problem? Should we have more measures of poverty, relative and absolute, as well as of uh, social mobility? Where there is a problem, what are the best policy options to address the problem? How do we reconcile possibly conflicting objectives, such as the appeal of Singapore as a business-friendly economy, fiscal sustainability, preserving the work ethic, against uh, the need for government intervention to reduce inequality? These are, as I said, very complex questions, and we will not be able to answer all these to the satisfaction of everyone. But in this session, we do have two Singaporeans who can give us some feel for the broad range of issues and options involved and the directions that we might take. Um, I actually have a very easy task because I don't need to introduce the two speakers. They're quite well known. Um, Minister Josephine Teo is Minister for Manpower and uh, Second Minister for Home Affairs. And as Janadas uh, has said, uh, Walter has just uh, become nominated member of parliament, but his day job is uh, associate professor. Uh, and in his uh, work, he's covered a lot of uh, these uh, topics. So I think we should go straight into the uh, insights that uh, they can provide. So could I invite? Uh, yes, please, thank you. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, from about a dozen years ago, Tuesday nights have never been the same. Every week, even if I'm away, that is when my Meet the People session takes place. Of the many cases we handle, there are inevitably a few that stand out and provoke deeper thought. One such case concerned a middle-aged man whom I shall call Kay. Uh, Kay called at uh, Meet the People session from time to time, seeking financial assistance. It came to our attention that Kay was a drug abuser, which explained the prolonged periods of absence from time to time. Local shopkeepers alerted us that vouchers dispensed to Kay had been exchanged for cash. We could only guess what it was used to purchase. Kay appeared one day asking for vouchers to buy provisions for his elderly mother. We asked instead that he list the items that she needed, which our volunteers bought and delivered. Several weeks later, a check donation appeared mysteriously on my desk, accompanied by a letter that identified as Kay's brother. He explained that in fact, their mother 
was well provided for. He apologized on behalf of his brother for the improper use of community resources, hence the check donation. I recognize the name of Kay's brother. It belonged to a successful businessman. Then it struck me that there was a strong resemblance in their physical appearances. But the stark differences in their fortunes were hard to miss. Cases like this confound us. We know that no two children belonging to the same family will have exactly the same outcomes, even if they were brought up similarly. But neither do we expect starkly different outcomes. They disturb us in the same way that social inequality make us feel uncomfortable. Wide gaps in income and wealth weigh on our minds. We want to know whether we have given those at the bottom a fair shot. Do they have reasonable prospects to move up? And what can we do to close the gaps? In today's IPS conference, the session focuses on unequal and immobile structures. I take it as an invitation to address structures that entrench inequality, make it hard for people at the bottom to get to the top. During my time in the Ministry of Finance, we studied the incomes of young Singaporeans in their 30s and compared them to their parents. 14% of those with parents who were in the lowest income quintile when they were growing up managed to move up to the top quintile of income earners as adults in their early 30s. 14% went from the lowest income quintile to the top income quintile. And this rate is much higher than the 7.5% in the United States, 9% in the UK, and about 12% in Denmark. This has been one of the most remarkable features of the Singapore system, that Singaporeans are able to transform the lives of their families over one generation. A major contributing factor is our belief in meritocracy. Public policies, too, have helped, particularly in education. We ensured universal access to good general education, which uplifted the population. We actively intervened to provide extra support to students in financial difficulties. Education at all levels is heavily subsidized. Additional support is provided for children from low, lower income families. Because of that, many students who would have dropped out of school were able to continue to be engaged in their studies. As a result, compared to other countries, Singapore has one of the smallest proportions of low performers in the Programme for International Student Assessment, or PISA, which this very busy slide attempts to show. You see that Singapore is right at the end, and it shows also that compared to rest of the world that participated in PISA, we have very few students in the low performing levels, and also uh, 
when you take a more stringent criteria in various domains, we do very well. Now, our 15-year-old students from disadvantaged backgrounds performed much better than their peers of similar backgrounds in developed countries, not just in literacy and numeracy, but also in other critical soft skills such as collaborative problem solving. But here's the thing, the top performing peers within Singapore are even further ahead by international comparison. So our low performing students are ahead, but our top performing students are even further ahead. So this puts additional pressure on everyone else to keep up. So there's a certain degree of stress, but it is also a kind of energy which, when coupled with broadened access to tertiary education, has given each successive cohort better chances to move up. So today, what we find is that seven in 10 of each primary one cohort progresses to publicly funded degree or diploma programs. Among students who live in one, two, or three-room HDB flats, more than half moved up to diploma or degree programs. And compared to earlier cohorts, those whose parents have less than secondary school education are now much more likely to attain degree or diploma qualifications. In fact, the improvement is more significant than those whose parents are well-educated. In other words, the education gap has actually narrowed. As Education Minister Ong Yi Kang has observed, we have one of the smallest education underclasses in Singapore. Still, we must recognize that parents with more resources naturally invest in their children in the hopes of giving them a bigger head start. This has always been the case. Parents always want to invest in their children and help them to get ahead. The more, the merrier. But decades of growing influence means that this group has expanded. And there are fewer families that remain poor. We feel bad for them and their children because compared to the rest who have moved ahead, their circumstances are worrying. We therefore, in the school system, tilt resources and support to students who need it more. Each student in specialized schools, like Spectra, receive about 24,000 per year in resourcing. Each student in normal technical stream, about 20,000 in resourcing. And students in other streams receive about $15,000 or less each. So you compare the difference, 24,000, 20,000, 15,000, very significant. And to intervene earlier, so as to reduce the, entrench in the entrenchment of advantage, we are expanding access to quality preschool and keeping it affordable. And I understand yesterday when DPM Thaman was dealing with this topic, he talked about intervening perhaps even earlier, going up to the prenatal stage. Now besides education, there are in fact multiple layers of support to mitigate the effects of inequality. This recognizes its complex nature and also requires efforts to level up through the working years besides education. In other words, 
our commitment goes beyond education and into employment. Let me just focus on this aspect, interventions in employment. Now, one big worry about inequality is the risk of disadvantage becoming entrenched in poorer households. This is particularly so if parents do not work or cannot work or cannot grow their incomes. From time to time, to address such concerns, there are calls to implement a minimum wage to uplift disadvantaged workers. But we have to think very carefully because to be meaningful, a minimum wage must, to some extent, force employers to pay more than the market rate for some types of labour. It is inevitable. Otherwise, the minimum wage would be set at a meaningless level. As a result, the minimum wage will have the same effect as a tax on employment, with the lowest-waged workers attracting the highest tax. Now, not all employers would want to employ workers at this rate, which could lead to lower levels of employment. To secure jobs, some workers may choose to work illegally below the minimum wage, which makes them even more vulnerable. Instead of a minimum wage, we choose to supplement incomes through the Workfare Income Supplement Scheme, or WIS for short, WIS. Introduced in 2007, WIS is a permanent feature of our social security system. It encourages low-wage workers to work regularly by providing support to the bottom 20% of workers. Eligible workers receive 60% WIS as CPF top-ups to build up their retirement savings and 40% of WIS as cash supplements to help them meet their daily needs. WIS payouts can comprise up to an extra 30% of the workers' monthly income, achieving the same uplift as a minimum wage possibly could. But there is a crucial difference. The cost of WIS is borne by the government, with no risk of inducing unemployment or illegal employment of such workers. That's the crucial difference. Who bears the cost? In this case, it's borne by the government. Minimum wage will be borne by the employers. And so, since WIS was implemented, we have raised the quali qualifying salaries three times to keep to the commitment of supporting the bottom 20%. And the main reason is that incomes have risen even at the lower end, and many WIS recipients graduated from the scheme's coverage. Over the past five years, from 2012 to 2017, the median income for full-time employed residents rose by a compounded annual rate of 3.4% in real terms. By comparison, income growth at the 20th percentile was faster at a compounded annual rate of 4.2% in real terms. And what this really means is that the income gap has narrowed somewhat albeit slightly. In the same period, WIS has paid out $5.5 billion to about 830,000 recipients. About $3.7 billion went into their CPF to help them build up savings for retirement. This also helps such workers achieve home ownership. 
Today, among the bottom 20% income earners in Singapore, 80% are homeowners. It's quite remarkable. Most of our visitors are very struck by this figure. They see that there is 90% homeownership, but it is the homeownership amongst the bottom 20% that stands out at such a high level of 80%. As an MP during house visits, it is always heartwarming to see cosy flats owned by residents from modest occupations earning modest salaries. They're down to earth and their hard work has paid off. The structure of WIS payouts therefore help low-wage workers become asset owners like everyone else. What about people who, despite working diligently their whole lives, still did not manage to build up much CPF savings? In 2016, we introduced the Silver Support Scheme to provide a cash payout to such citizens. This scheme supplements the retirement incomes of the bottom 20% to 30% of Singaporeans aged 65 and above and older in a modest but meaningful way. Over 150,000 seniors received the silver support payouts, totaling more than $300 million in 2017. And this is also another very important feature of our scheme. An income supplement helps, but the better solution lies in growing wages sustainably over time. One way that we have done so is through the progressive wage model developed by the tripartite partners. I understand that uh, Professor Gillian Cole raised a question about this yesterday. Now, unlike minimum wage, which specifies a wage floor, the progressive wage model specifies a ladder. In fact, there are four interlinked ladders for skills, jobs, productivity, and wages. Under the progressive wage model, a worker can be paid higher wage on the basis of his improved skills and large job scope or heightened productivity. So it is tied to some measurable effort on the part of the individual. And that gives it a very different tone and texture. And the rungs of the ladder provide an upward path. So the worker is not stuck earning minimum wage. Wages increases, which increases are also more sustainable. We have made progressive wage model compulsory in sectors where wages had somehow stagnated and the workers had little bargaining power, such as in security, cleaning and landscaping. But the concept has also been applied voluntarily in sectors like public bus driving, where starting salaries have gone up by about 21% in three years. Salaries for experienced drivers improved even faster as the government enhanced public bus services. All in, the progressive wage model has led to wage growth for more than 70,000 resident workers. Another important way for wages to go up is when the economy grows and the labour market is tight. I want to emphasise keeping the labour market tight is a very important aspect. Singapore, however, has sometimes been criticised for growing at all costs, worsening inequality along the way. This idea must have gained some traction. Some years back, I attended a dialogue with JC2 students. Their first question was whether we should slow down our economic growth so that those behind can catch up with those ahead. 
Now, this sounds intuitive. However, the evidence suggests the contrary. A look back into the last decade offers some insight. Much of our growth as we passed the millennium took place from 2004 to 2007, when our GDP grew an average of 8% per year. By going for growth when the conditions allowed, we offset the downturns we experienced earlier in the decades. First, when the global dot-com bubble burst in 2000, then 9-11, and again when SARS hit us in 2003. In the process, we reduced unemployment and raised wages for Singaporeans after the standstill in the first part of the decade. As the chart shows, it enabled the median income per household member to rise significantly from 2005 to 2008. In fact, contributing virtually all the income growth that occurred in the past decade. Median income over the decade grew by 20%, adjusted for inflation, and virtually all of it happened during that four-year period. Make no mistake, going slow will not reduce inequality. Doing that hurts the very people we are trying to help. It will make everybody worse off, but it will have the harshest impact on those at the bottom. Jobs will be lost and incomes will fall for those at the lower end of the workforce, while at the top end, those with the talent or entrepreneurial ability to seize opportunities elsewhere will up and go. Slow growth will not assure us of a more equal society as long as we live in a globalized world. A look at our Gini coefficient supports this view too. In 1997, Singapore was hard hit by the Asian financial crisis. In 2001, the burst of the US dot-com bubble affected us too. In the aftermath of both events, we observed Gini coefficient spiking very steeply. Over the last 10 years, we have seen inequality moderate, both in tandem with a gradual pickup of the global economy, due in part to a more deliberate effort on the part of the government to implement significant social intervention, such as workfare income supplement, but also as the global economy picked up. Growth has other benefits, and I speak from the time I was a union leader. It was always going to be easier to negotiate for both bonuses and salary increments when businesses are more profitable, and those tended to be during periods of rapid growth. With a brighter outlook, the labour market is tighter and the businesses are more motivated to invest in productivity measures. Through initiatives like the Inclusive Growth Programme, employers were incentivized to share productivity gains with the workers. An expanding economy can also provide the state with resources to effect transfers. And I shan't go into that because I think this is a well-known point. DPM made the same points yesterday. But I want to conclude by saying that the expanded resources that has enabled the state to put in more aggressive programs of social transfers has reduced our Gini coefficient considerably, while not exerting too heavy a tax burden on the middle-income earners, unlike in countries like Denmark and Finland. So, ladies and gentlemen, I apologise that it took me quite so long and quite so clumsily to come to the same conclusions that DPM summarised in a few sentences, which is that you have to keep the escalator going. But essentially, that's the same point I was trying to make. Keep growth going. Keep the growth story a part of the Singapore story. 
Inequality is not new to Singapore, but every now and then, it deserves a fresh relook so that we revisit our past approaches and assess if some things ought to change. The recent debate, in my view, can be a very useful exercise, and there are other important issues I hope we can also discuss, such as the impact of technology. And I look forward to our dialogue. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Minister. Could I now invite uh, Assistant Associate Professor Walter Tessira to the podium? Yeah. Ministers, uh, distinguished guests, thank you for this opportunity. Um, like Minister Chiu, I have the unenviable task of following up on uh, DPM's escalator speech last night. So this is a very difficult task, but let's see what I can do about that. Okay, I wanted to uh, pose three questions and possibly some answers in this, con in, in this debate on inequality. And I wanted to approach it from a bit of an academic perspective, so uh, I do apologize if some of this is going to be dry. Okay, so I think if you want to think about and understand inequality, um, you really want to ask yourself three questions. And uh, just, just a quick word for actually the AV guys over there. I wonder if you can consider uh, just posting only the slides and, and not my face, lah, basically. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you, because uh, this will just keep, you know, help everybody uh, keep pace. Okay, so um, the three questions are going to be, what's the economic context of inequality in Singapore? That's one. Why is inequality today different, if it is, from what it has been like in the past in Singapore? And finally, uh, what can be done about it? Okay, so I think the first question is inequality, has it always been with us? Um, the reason why I ask this question is that if you look at the debate in the media today, if you uh, think about what people are saying about inequality, it seems like this is a new problem. Okay? But the reality is it's not a new problem at all. In fact, inequality has always been a persistent feature of life in Singapore, um, all the way back from independence. And of course, a large reason for that is at independence, Singapore is actually a very poor country. And the defining characteristic of many poor countries is that they are actually highly unequal. You have a small group of elites uh, who actually have a lot of the resources in the country and you have a large mass of very poor people and that's what we started out in Singapore with. Okay? So if you look at the red lines, that's the Gini coefficient in Singapore. Um, now, I have to say, the numbers for Gini coefficients in Singapore are not going to be always consistent between different sources the further back you get. That's because we don't have necessarily very good income distribution records to be able to calculate these numbers from. So the numbers from time to time will be different from those that, for example, Mintio just presented. But I think the general picture is clear. Um, inequality has been persistent in Singapore, uh, but at the same time, that shouldn't obscure the fact that growth has also been very high in Singapore, right? So economic development has, in fact, greatly increased living standards in Singapore. If you look at the lower lines there, that's basically GDP per capita in Singapore. And you can see that that's actually grown sharply ever since independence. So we don't need the graph to give us evidence of this, right? The evidence of our rapid economic growth is, is all around us is in the fact that educational outcomes have improved dramatically, health has improved dramatically, um, mobility also has been rapid in Singapore. But the basic point is um, the increase in absolute living standards has not actually come around, come along with 
and appreciable change or reduction in inequality. It's always been a feature of economic life in Singapore. Okay. Now, in part, this is because inequality and growth um, often results in the very top having much faster rising incomes than the rest. Now, in 1974, the top 10% of taxpayers, for example, earned about 31 cents of every dollar reported in assessable income. By 2004, the top 10% were earning about 37 cents out of every dollar in income. So make no mistake, everybody is growing, but it happens to be the case that the very top have experienced more rapid growth at various parts of our history than the rest. And if you continue on the series through the 2000s, uh, again, while, income has risen, while incomes have risen for all Singaporeans, the expansion in the upper share of income earners has continued, basically. Okay? So, one of the questions we have as an economist is, has policy contributed to this in any way? Um, this graph shows you the top marginal income tax rates across a uh, cross-section of developed countries um, from the 1900s to more or less the present day. And on that, I've overlaid just a couple of points for Singapore in red, okay? Now, what this should show you is if you look at how tax rates have evolved in many countries worldwide, they've started off from a very low floor. Personal income taxes were virtually unheard of at the turn of the century, of the last century. And they have risen very sharply in the period before and just after the Second World War, but then they've come down dramatically uh, from the 60s onwards. And Singapore has actually been no stranger to this global phenomenon, right? Uh, our marginal tax rates, our top marginal rates, have fallen from a high of about 55% in 1961 to about 20% in the mid-2000s. And this is actually a policy decision. It reflects, in part, the fact that we've restructured our economy towards a broader tax base with GST introduction in 1994, but it's also been a change in philosophy away from hardcore democratic socialism uh, towards prioritizing absolute growth to some extent, which means, of course, that you want to let the most able keep a greater share of what they're able to generate for the economy, okay? Now, priorita prioritizing absolute growth can hardly be said to be bad policy. Again, on a wide range of human indicators, which as the World Bank's uh, recent report has shown, the average Singaporean, and in fact, the most vulnerable Singaporean, is still gonna be better off in inequality than many countries ranked better on inequality than us by courtesy of, of Oxfam. Okay, so like DPM, I share his view that the Oxfam report does not do a particularly good job of measuring what really matters when it comes to inequality. But we're back to the original question now. Why are we so concerned? Is this a problem of elite guilt, for example? Or are there structural reasons to be concerned? So let's now talk about social mobility. Again, in DPM's words, is the escalator still moving for all of us, or is there an increasing likelihood in the future that some of us are going to have to take the stairs? Now, social mobility is basically a story of human potential, right? If you can't develop the next generation in particular, you're never gonna have social mobility. And I think the real question here is, how is social mobility or how is human potential developed over the life cycle? Now, Research suggests that human potential is the result of the development of cognitive and non-cognitive skills. So we don't just mean intelligence here or what you learn in school, we also mean very basic life skills such as working with others, socialization, learning to be patient, 
self-control. Now, the early development of all of these skills contributes to being able to develop other more applied skills later on. So the real question is, what actually influences the development of skills and abilities? Now, behavioral genetics suggests that the old idea many of us might have had, that this is a question of nature versus nur nurture, now that debate is actually obsolete. Now rather, what the most recent su research suggests is that genetic variation is actually expressed, that is, it comes out in practical skills and abilities when it's combined with environmental influences as children grow up, okay? Now what that basically means is you can take, for example, identical genetic twins, but due to the natural variation they're going to experience in their schooling, in how their parents treat them, in how society deals with each of them as individuals, they're going to have very different expressions, okay, or different ability sets as they actually grow up. And I think that's very important. It's important because it implies that genetics isn't destiny, right? Children with the same genetic potential can actually have very different outcomes, and that means that there's a lot that we can do as parents and as a society to actually help people unlock their potential. But this also means parents have a double influence, right? Both in terms of what they pass on in terms of genes as well as what they can pass on using their wealth connections and so on, right? So what are the implications? Now, as Minister Teo mentioned, social mobility in Singapore is in fact moderately high by developed country standards, right? And this is data that's based on the most recent uh, good data, which means that we're looking at uh, children who are now in early to middle age. But the important question I think all of us are grappling with is, can we expect social mobility to be as high for children born today? Especially the children born in the most disadvantaged groups in Singapore. Now, here are some facts that I think should give us some pause for thought. In 2000, about 42% of young married couples were matched perfectly in education. That means graduates marrying graduates, diploma holders marrying diploma holders, and so on and so forth. But in the space of 10 years, the proportion of marriages which were perfectly matched in education actually rose sharply from 42% to 51.5%. And in fact, the increase is actually most stark when you look at university graduates. It turns out university graduates in Singapore virtually only marry other university graduates. Okay, about 17 to 80% of university graduates are perfectly matched on that educational dimension, right? Now, what's the importance of this? Going back to the theory of how human potential is developed, the problem is assortative marriage will reduce mobility if parental influences shape human capital development, right? Now, in research on um, the PISA scores in Singapore, uh, Kelvin Sia at NUS found, for example, that students with at least one tertiary educated parent not only perform better in PISA, but they also report greater academic ambition. Now, assortative marriages also have implications for income inequality straight off. For example, the US Gini coefficient would in fact be 0.09 points lower if you didn't have the rate of assortative marriage that you do have in the US, because generally speaking, people with higher incomes do marry other people with higher incomes. So the basic problem is income inequality has a very high chance of reproducing itself, right? The variation in human potential and the ability of people to move up in society 
is going to be affected as a result of this. Okay, so what can we do about it? If we can't stop inbreeding and we can't stop the rich investing in their children, right? Can we still, can we still help people escape poverty? Okay, so here's a bit of apocrypha. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, author of The Great Gatsby, is said to have once remarked, the rich are very different from you and I. Okay? And in response, Ernest Hemingway said, yes, they have more money. Okay, so what's the point? This is really the, this is really an encapsulation of a very, broader, a very broad debate. And that debate is, to what extent are people personally responsible for their outcomes in life? So if I look at a rich person, do I automatically think that that person is where he or she is today because they have certain behaviors, traits, abilities, or whatever that allowed them to get ahead? And if I believe that, right, the corollary must be that I also believe to some extent that a poor person is where they are today because they lacked some of those behaviors or abilities. Right, you can't really have one without the other. You can't believe, for example, that people get where they are because of merit if you don't also implicitly believe, even though you wouldn't like to, that people who are not as well off are maybe also there because of some behaviors. So that's really the problem, right? Are the rich or the poor like everyone else or not? Now this debate has a very long and contentious history, but it's obvious behaviors do differ systematically and powerfully between the rich and poor and between different social groups. The real question is, how do we interpret these behaviors? Now, Chiu Yuyan has very powerfully criticized the implicit assumption a lot of us make that, for example, the lower income ways are inferior, their life pathways deviant, their choices bad, their culture is problematic. I think this is a very cogent critique, right? We should never put ourselves in a situation where we assume or we read into the behavior of other people um, a value judgment of this type. But no matter how much we try to avoid it, I think it's nearly inevitable that we think about this implicitly. But what I want to talk about is setting aside value judgments, the choices you make can actually make it more difficult to escape poverty. And if you assume that the rich, uh, sorry, that the poor want to escape poverty on the same merits or basis as the rich, um, the question really we have to grapple with is why do they appear to have challenges following through with those plans? Now, I want you to consider a very simple thought experiment as we try to get ourselves into um, understanding the conditions of the poor. Now, imagine that you came here for this conference, well, you are here for this conference today, and you got a free parking coupon. Okay, you drove and you got a free parking coupon. Now, when you're leaving the conference today, you're in a rush, you want to go home, you want to have dinner with your family, and you forget to use the free parking coupon when you exit, okay? Now, would this lapse of judgment cause you a great amount of stress? I think for those of us in the room here today, the answer is no. You're going to be out 20 or $30 because like, parking here is very expensive, but it's not going to be a life-changing moment for you. But if you are earning $1,000 as a cleaner in Singapore, this kind of simple mistake is going to wipe out half of your daily wages. And in practical terms, it means that you might have to skip a meal maybe that day, or you're going to have to say, I have to pay my utility bill the next week, okay? Or I can't show my face at the childcare center because I'm worried that the, that the teachers are going to ask me for my monthly co-payment, even though it's not a lot of money, right? So the real problem is this. The poor 
are simply going to have less capacity to absorb the everyday mistakes that all of us make. That's because they face multiple conditions of scarcity at the same time. They're poor in money, they're poor in social contacts, they're also poor in time all at once. And because of this, this creates a mental bandwidth tax that actually affects the quality of decision-making by the poor. Now, can we actually do something about this? In 2015, um, myself, Irene Ong at NUS and Chien Ong at NUS uh, studied the Getting Out of Debt program by Methodist Welfare Services. Now, the aim of this program was to help low-income, heavily indebted Singaporean families by granting them up to $5,000 to pay off their chronic debts. Now, these beneficiaries were very disadvantaged. Their per capita income was about $350. They owed about $6,000 in debt. It was spread over three to four different creditors. I want to stress, these are actually debts of everyday living. Utilities, housing, your phone bills. This is not a lifestyle problem. It is actually a problem of not having the income to deal with daily life. Okay? So, this is what we found. We found that after they had their debts relieved, these low-income, highly indebted Singaporeans made fewer errors and responded fast faster on standardized cognitive tests. Now, how do you think about the magnitude of improvement? The improvement they experience after debt relief is actually equivalent to reversing several decades' worth of aging, because aging causes you to perform worse on this particular cognitive test, right? Now, in addition to these improvements in cognitive ability, we also found anxiety fell significantly, risk aversion fell, and present bias also improved. And these improvements in particular were strongly linked to how many debt accounts the program was able to clear. And this suggests that the cost of managing multiple creditors causes a lot of mental bandwidth costs and makes it difficult for people to function or think about anything. So, my belief is the poor are like everyone else, but they have less money. They're like and unlike the rich at the same time. The way we should think about it is the same highly fallible decision processes operate in the rich and poor alike. The big difference is if you happen to be poor, your mind is more stressed and overloaded by everyday events. And the good news about this is that if we can intervene to address these sources of friction, of difficulties in cognitive functioning, we can actually potentially improve the decision-making capability of the poor. So I just have a couple of closing thoughts forward. I think one of the very big debates we have in Singapore and many other countries is this question about whether we should be thinking more about input inequality or output inequality. You can think about the Oxfam report as being the extreme on input inequality and the World Bank report and what we often think is more important, of course, is output inequality. But I want to make a few observations. Input inequality, which, for example, is measured by the pre-tax structure of income and wealth, actually does matter because it can powerfully shape output inequality in the end. It eventually concentrates power in the rich. If we don't do something about the accumulating potential growth, wealth, and so on in the rich, and over time, I think it has a ratchet effect. Over time, it encourages us, it encourages us to see wealth more and more as a marker of social value, even though we know that it probably shouldn't be. Now, 
we happen to know, of course, that a completely redistributive society is going to fail. And so too will a society that fails to ask those who are better off among us for more. So I think the practical, the practical question is, we really have to weigh the trade-offs. We're rightly concerned that if we ask for too much from the rich, we're going to stunt personal incentives, but at the same time, there's a real cost to having an unequal society. And not all things, not all features of inequality can actually be fixed, exposed with transfers. So I'm going to say, perhaps we can be a bit more bold with asking for a bit more from the best in society. And what we can do is we can invest those resources into continuing to build a society that is going to be something that the best are going to be proud to call home, right? Rather than one that they happen to enjoy because of our low income taxes. Now, if you think about welfare, the question here is, does the structure of inequality hinder decision-making in the poor? I've tried to present some evidence that suggests maybe it does. We really have to understand how does daily life impact the poor, not just as a basic act of empathy, but also as a first step towards understanding what's the practical experience or consequences of inequality on the poor, and how does it hinder their ability to escape poverty? If we don't have an ideological opposition to welfare, if we want to judge welfare purely on the practical principle, does it actually succeed? Then the real question is, does greater welfare help or hinder disadvantaged families in their path to escape persistent poverty? Again, this is a very difficult question with trade-offs, but it's something that I invite you uh, to join us in thinking about the matter. Okay? So that's it for the presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Walter, for that uh, very informative and uh, insightful presentation. Uh, we've had two fantastic uh, uh, insights into this question of inequality and what we need to do. And there are so many questions that arise from it. And I should open up to the floor, but I can't resist uh, uh, taking the advantage of this position to ask a few questions first. And uh, one thing that uh, struck me, which I think we have not had time to cover, is really Looking forward, um, what are the things that could change the parameters that have uh, governed the conversation so far? One of the things we have not mentioned is technology. Um, the fact is that we are in the middle of not one or two, but multiple technological transitions with many new technologies reaching the point of uh, takeoff. And these are going to create significant disruptions and dislocations to business and to the labor market. In the context of this increasing uncertainty and potential job losses, some of the studies that came out of Oxford, for instance, talk about more than 40% of existing job types being eliminated over the next 20 years. Uh, in this context, um, how should government interventions change to accommodate such uh, uh, trends? And maybe I can open up to Minister first and then Walter. Thank you very much, Manu. Uh, I think that's a very valid question to ask, and I think it has been uh, a source of great concern for people when we think about the potential of uh, technology disruptions to uh, take away jobs that are routine, uh, manual in nature. And uh, I think these, these concerns are valid. We have to address them. Uh, but there is also uh, an age dimension to 
uh, our current inequality that, that is worth noting. Uh, just using the profile of our workfare income supplement recipients as a, as a proxy, uh, it, the, about two in three of the workfare income supplement recipients uh, age 55 and above age 55 and above. So there is a overrepresentation to some extent of uh, seniors uh, amongst those in Singapore who earn the lowest wages. There's an overrepresentation of older workers. Now, it correlates incidentally with uh, education attainment because if you look at Singaporeans age 60 and above, then about three in four of them actually have secondary or below qualifications. So you put the two together and you immediately see that they have uh, some resemblance to each other. And what this points to is that um, amongst those who are learning the lowest wages, a part of the difficulty is that they belong to that generation that did not have the best possible educational opportunities as we are attempting to do today. And if I can just point to one example of how technology might affect this group. Uh, incidentally, since I am in the Home Affairs Ministry, one particular occupation uh, is of great interest to me, and that is security officers. Security officers are also a prominent group amongst the workfare recipients. Among security officers, uh, actually, about half of them are age 50 and above. And of that half, another half are age 60 and above. So there is a very senior profile amongst the security officers. And if you look at the challenges that the security agencies face, they are looking at much higher demand for security services that they have to try and meet. And when they look at their aging workforce, a big worry for them is how they can continue to meet the demands of their clients with a shrinking workforce. Now, from the perspective of these security firms, technology isn't a bad thing because technology has the potential to enable their senior workers. One practical problem for senior security officers is buildings are becoming more complex. We have perimeters that are becoming harder to guard. So you put yourself in the shoes of a 60-year-old security officer, his knees are weakening, and he has to do ground patrols over a large area, and very often these patrols are not yielding you know, very many discoveries. He's just walking around, and it's, it's painful on his knees. But today, if you look at the number of CCTVs that are being implemented, in modern building complexes. And if you look at the implementation of video analytics, that potentially can cut the job of patrolling down to a bare minimum. In other words, the CCTV together with video analytics can be monitored from a remote location, replacing the job of the security officer in terms of the patrolling. He can guard a wider area in that sense, the firm can be more efficient, is in a position to pay higher salary to the security officer. So far from technology displacing him, in the context of growing demand for the service, 
actually technology can enable this worker, whether he is older or lower skilled. He can have the potential to acquire the skills and earn a higher pay on the basis of his enlarged job scope. So that is something I think that uh, has to be borne in mind. We cannot think of um, very high-end technology, artificial intelligence, you know. That, I think there is still some distance away. It's not something that we should discount. It's not something that we can dismiss. It's something we have to study. But for the immediate foreseeable future, I, I don't think that that is going to happen quite so soon. There are many other examples where the work of um, manual laborers are being made easier, particularly those who are older. And I think we have to take advantage of the potential for productivity improvement that technology brings because to the extent that technology can uplift productivity and achieve productivity breakthroughs, the chances of workers at the lower end earning higher salaries is that much better. So overall, I see more upsides than downsides. That's one aspect of it. But of course, um, what is often not said when these numbers are presented is that with some jobs being replaced by machines, there are new jobs being created that are not necessarily high-tech in nature, it's high-touch. And these high-touch jobs, people still want other people to deliver them. Uh, in healthcare, very good example. In childcare, uh, can't quite see robots replacing humans just yet. The question is how we can help our workers adjust to the possibilities that these new jobs bring. Help them to acquire the skills, enter these jobs. I think those must uh, occupy our minds and be the focus of our efforts. Help people transit to where the growth areas are. Help businesses take advantage of technology, raise productivity, and in the process, I like what uh, Walter has said. We must ask those who are at the very highest, at the very best, to also see how they can contribute. And in contributing, I think there is also not just the contribution of taxes, uh, there is also the contribution as employers, uh, there's the contribution as co-workers, co-workers that we can provide. So I'll just stop right there. I guess uh, just a few brief remarks. Um, I think in many ways, this uh, fear of technological disruption is again a very old story. It seems the thing about human history is that we keep repeating the, the same fears again and again. Um, the reason why I say that is, um, um, I, I think if, if you, if you some people may have heard the, uh, the term Luddite, right? So a Luddite is, you know, um, kind of a, a catch term for people who reject technology, uh, people who want to destroy technology because they fear being displaced. But the term actually came about, I believe, uh, in response to the Industrial Revolution, I think, in England, where people actually feared, I think, the uh, steam-powered, I think, spinning loom, which they feared might take uh, manual workers out of their jobs for making textiles. So it's a very old concern that we have. Um, now, what does economic history teach us? If you think about the world um, distribution of labor about 200 years ago, it's pretty obvious the vast majority of workers everywhere throughout the world were in agriculture. Everybody was a farmer, basically. And of course, the reason why everybody was a farmer was that uh, there were virtually no technological applications in agriculture. So if you weren't a farmer, you wouldn't be able to actually generate enough food to survive. Now, 
Today, how many people are involved in farming in the most advanced economies? It's not the majority, it's something like 5% of the population. Right? So 5% of the population today produces the food for everybody else in most advanced economies. So what happened to the other 70, 80% of the population who used to be farmers? They're not unemployed, correct? Uh, many of them are, you know, around us everywhere today. You know, they're civil servants, bankers, lawyers, engineers, everything. We've managed to find a lot of jobs, uh, or rather, because people were freed up by the agricultural re revolution uh, from needing to farm for a living, they've been able to find other productive things to do. But at the same time, there are obviously distributional consequences of any technological change. When there was ma mass industrialization, for example, in developed economies, uh, there was a large shift of people away from agriculture towards good-paying factory jobs, good-paying clerical jobs. That was a way for people to escape poverty. But um, fast forward, of course, to the present day, and you see that many old factory towns in the developed world um, are basically going extinct. The factories have shut down a long time ago. Uh, people are looking for new opportunities, but they often lack the skills uh, or know-how to adapt to those new opportunities. And I think that's the real distributional challenge that we face that um, Mintio also highlighted, right? We may have those new jobs available, but how do you get somebody to be adaptable uh, to convert from their job today, for example, uh, maybe as a paralegal or a clerk whose job is going to be overtaken by AI document processing uh, to a high-touch job like patient care, for example, or customer care. That's not easy because all of us have implicit value judgments that we make about the value of different kinds of jobs, and because of that, we find it very difficult to change what we do because for many of us, what we do is who we are. That's, that's a problem. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. Um, can I now open up to the floor and get the first, I think Prof Ko has his arm up and then behind Pauline, I think, yes? Yeah. Prof Ko first. Um, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to, to thank Minister Teo and Professor Tessara for two very good presentations. I have a comment, and I'd like to pose a question to both of them. Um, my comment is on Minister Theo's eloquent narrative on why a minimum wage is not a good idea. She gave two reasons, that it could cause unemployment. It could also cause illegal employment. I would respectfully point out that in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, which have a minimum wage, it has not caused those two negative consequences. In fact, when Hong Kong introduced the minimum wage, it lifted hundreds of thousands of Hong Kongers out of poverty and enabled them to live in dignity. And now my question. Um, last evening, DPM Taman talked about escalators. So this morning, I would like to ask our two distinguished speakers a question about the olive and the pear. Uh, let me explain. In volume three of the book, The Little Red Dot, there is an essay by a former ambassador of China to Singapore, Yang Wenchang. Ambassador Yang recalled a conversation he had with our founding prime minister, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. 
Ambassador Yang asked Mr. Lee, what is your vision for Singapore? And Mr. Lee said, I want to build a Singapore that resembles an olive. Very few very rich people, very few poor people, a very large middle class. I recently plotted the income profile of Singapore and it does not look like an olive. It looks like a pear. Very large number of people at the bottom. So my question to Minister Teo and Professor Tessera is, what has happened to Mr. Lee's olive? How did the olive become a pear? And if the pear is not what we want, what can we do about it? Thank you very much. It's an honour to get a question from Tommy. <laughs> Lee raised an example of Hong Kong and several other countries. Um, as it turns out, uh, I visited Hong Kong not long after they implemented uh, minimum wage. And I talked to a number of people, employers for example, and I recall quite distinctly a uh, successful businesswoman telling me about a very stark change that she observed at the condominium that she lived in. She said that um, it used to be an elderly gentleman who used to operate the guard post. He was sort of like the porter and uh, doubling up as the security person uh, in the condominium that she lived in. And she said not long after minimum wages were implemented, she noticed that uh, this gentleman had disappeared, this elderly gentleman. And in his place, a young man was now doing the job of the porter come security officer. And she was very disturbed by this and tried to find out more. So she asked this young man, she said, why are you doing this job? You know, why are you sitting in that little guard post playing with your mobile phone? Shouldn't you go out and try and do a job that gives you better prospects? So he answered her, he says, why would I want to do that? This job allows me to earn minimum wage which is not different from another job that I have to do. And I get to spend my time sitting around playing games. And she was furious and she also attempted to find out uh, what has happened to the uncle who exited from that post. She found out much to her dismay that he had been displaced because from the employer's standpoint, for the same minimum wage, the employer had expressed a preference for the younger worker. So what happened to this senior uncle? And to what extent is he living his retirement years in dignity? I'm not so sure because as far as this businesswoman was able to find out, this elderly uncle retired to some, I don't know whether it's a village, but it was in southern China. I believe he decided that it was a lower cost of living then he had to bear in Hong Kong. And since he could no longer hold the job, he had to leave Hong Kong. So with all due respect, I'm not so sure how living in dignity looks like, uh, even in a, in a context like that. But Professor Tomiko asked a very important question. And that is, how did we get from the olive to the pear? And one perspective of looking at it is that how is it that there is still a group 
that was not able to make the leap. But another way of looking at it is that it is a problem of success. It is because a system has been built up which enables large numbers of people, large swaths, to move up to the middle, then, then from the middle to move up to the upper middle types of level of attainments. And this group has expanded. And I said this quite uh, at the beginning of uh, my presentation, which is that with each successive cohort, the parents very naturally want to expand on that advantage. It's something that is very difficult to overcome. And I think the honest way of dealing with it is to say that the journey ahead is going to be harder than what it was in the past. If we fail to recognize that, then I think we will be on a, we will be, we will never be able to find a way to bridge. But there is also another very important aspect, I think, which is that regardless of where we are, uh, and Janadas put it in a very eloquent way too at the beginning, that economic worth must not equate to moral worth, that there must be a way in which we are able to look each other in the eye and look past all the markers of social success and say to each other, at the level of human beings, there is a certain inherent worth in each one of us and we can teach, reach and interact with each other with respect and consideration. And if we are not able to do that, then I think no system will be able to help us to succeed. That, to my mind, is the bigger challenge of our society. Thank you. So I, I think um, I will also provide comments in two parts. I think first, maybe just briefly on the minimum wage, although there was a comment and not a question, and then later on the olive and pear. Um, I think the economic evidence is actually a little mixed on the effects of minimum wages on economic outcomes. Okay? Outcomes meaning, of course, whether it effectively raises wages and whether it results in uh, large unemployment. I think it's obviously true that if you have very large and binding minimum wages, that introduces undesirable rigidity in the labor market and that has economic consequences. It will create some deadweight losses by, you know, um, of, the of the sort that uh, Mintio mentioned. But at the same time, I think um, it's possible for calibrated minimum wages to fulfill a very similar role in the market as strong unions might or employment protections. And that is, they help to address the basic asymmetry that exists in many uh, labor markets between workers and employers. I think the reality is uh, many workers um, are not aware of their rights. Uh, if they are not operating in solidarity, they have very little bargaining power. They're often in a take it or leave it position. I mean, this is one of the reasons why, as Mintio mentioned, Without a tight labor market, you may not see a lot of action for wages and employment prospects because if the labor market is you know, pretty loose, then obviously the worker is not in a strong position. So I think in some circumstances, um, the economic evidence just, just actually showed that minimum wages can be raised uh, without significant job losses or unemployment. Again, the evidence is really quite mixed on this. Okay, now on the- Walter, oh, sorry. if I may yeah. uh, interject on that point sure, also. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I omitted to mention, and I should have done so, uh, we are not ideologically opposed to minimum wages. And Walter is very right in pointing out that in certain areas where the labour market is consistently tight, there is room for us to do something, and which is why in certain sectors we decided that it was probably suitable 
for the implementation of a progressive wage type of mm. model, but not stopping at minimum wage, providing a ladder upwards as well. But on a wide scale, I think that is much more debatable. So just about the olive and the pear, um, you know, in part, this is a question about um, what do you get, right? Um, for example, do you get a big pear or do you get a smaller olive? And the reason why I say that is it's actually quite obvious if you have uh, pretty strict, for example, taxation or redistributive policies, you can take any arbitrary uh, pear-shaped income distribution and you can sort and massage it in an olive. And the real question is after the massaging is done, do you end up with a lot less uh, fruit than what you started out with originally? That's, that's a real question, right? And I think, again, um, the evidence in this is going to be mixed. Uh, there is no question that if you take all of the income people have and then you redistribute it, you can create any arbitrary olive or fruit, but then you may not have much left after the squeezing is done, okay? Uh, but um, I think, again, for a range of taxes, it is possible to achieve more redistribution without noticeably affecting or hurting people's incentives to work. And I think the reason for that is there's actually a lot of, um, I, I think to some extent sometimes we overestimate uh, the negative impact of marginal taxes on the high end. Of course, if you go from 20 or 30 percent to 90 percent, it's no, I mean, it's, it's going to be obvious that people are going to cut back on their work a lot, okay? But um, I think the evidence on the elasticity of response to changes in top marginal tax rates is really quite mixed. Uh, there's some recent evidence that, for example, suggests that for quite a wide range of top-end marginal income taxes, there's not that much difference in growth across countries. Again, um, I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done on this, but I think we should have the confidence uh, to, to not shy away uh, from raising taxes if we believe that it's necessary to maintain our social compact uh, and we think that in terms of um, our competitiveness, it's not going to hurt us too much. Okay? Yes. Walter, you know I'm not going to let you get away with that inbreeding comment, right? Yeah, sorry. It took us so long to grow our men with enough confidence to marry their equal. I think that statistic should be valorized and not uh, attributed a fault. So my question really is, we've done very well in education, um, and Minister, if you could address this, We've done very well in education. I think that personally, we are now putting too much emphasis on educational achievement. And as a result, that seems to be that, that sole factor that is used, that's given the greatest weight when it comes to career placement. And therefore, we are now stuck. Would you elaborate on perhaps there are other, other, other hallmarks of excellence that we could use to advise <coughs> employers to look broadly for talent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pauline. I, I think inbreeding is addressed to Walter. <laughs> Employment is addressed to me. I was going to say that looking after population, I'm just happy people marry at all. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <laughs> um, I think Pauline brought up a very uh, important aspect, uh, which is how we evaluate suitability for work, how we think of talent. Uh, it relates to uh, the challenges we face uh, in inequality. It relates to how we are prepared to offer work to people whose skills may not look like ours. It relates to how we deal with the challenges of displacement due to business restructuring brought about by technology. It is the idea that from the employer's perspective, they're always looking for a person with a 100% job fit. Plug and play. Take a person, expect every box to be ticked, then only then I'm prepared to hire the person to work. It's the idea that um, there is a hesitation, there's a resistance to invest in the human capital development of a potential recruit in order to make them suitable for work. I think this uh, does not just relate to education qualification because educational qualification is simply a marker that suggests to the employer that all the boxes are ticked. There are not enough ways in which, as employers, we are looking beyond the piece of paper for assurance and really looking at evidence of competence in other areas. I give you an example. Women who are coming back to the workforce. Now, if a business person, if an employer is looking for someone who can multitask, who can deal with pressure, who can, um, who can make you know, quick decisions, uh, who has to deal with emergencies, can you find someone more qualified than a mother who has had to look after her children for the last five years? You cannot find someone with better skills than that. And yet, we are more likely to be saying that, uh, oh, you know, you were outside of the workforce for the five years, um, you're, um, uh, you, you don't have the relevant skills to keep up with the changing job landscape. So I think it has a, a broader challenge for all of us in terms of how we look past paper, how we look past uh, a, a CV, and how we ex identify the skill set a person brings to the table and gives that person an opportunity. To my mind, this challenge of addressing inequality uh, requires every one of us to chip in. And chipping in also requires, from the employer standpoint, the willingness to give people who don't look like us, who don't have on paper the same kind of skill sets that perhaps a, a very well-educated person has, and saying, you know, to what extent am I willing to also help bring that person on board? So I, I think that we have a challenge in that regard. So I think um, the you know the, the human capital literature um, have actually played increasing importance in recent years on the import uh, on non-academic skills. You know I, I think if you if you think about how economists thought about um, what contributes to human capital 30, 40 years ago, um, all of the talk is obviously just about education because that's what we can measure, and if we can measure it, then we can regress it, and then that's what we do as economists, right? 
Um, but I think we also recognize that there's a lot of importance to non-academic skills such as sociability, being able to uh, tolerate other people at work, uh, work in teams, and so on. Our real difficulty is how do we measure this and how do employers actually have a better sense of what these non-cognitive or non-academic skills are actually like? Because they probably make a huge difference in outcomes at work, but can you figure out what somebody's really like uh, at the point of hiring? I think the, the other point I want to make is our emphasis on academic achievement, maybe the expense of all else, I think is to a very large extent a, leg a legacy problem. It's a legacy problem because when we were thinking about um, the job search mechanism or the job screening mechanism 30 years ago, if you got somebody coming through your door who's a graduate, that is somebody who is very, very, very highly selected in the population because you don't have a lot of university spaces and it's the combination of ability as well as a uh, fairly privileged background that gets you one of those spaces, right? So you assume certain things about graduates and that's why you tend to prioritize that over many other things in hiring. Uh, but I think for better or worse, as we become a society where having advanced qualifications is actually the norm, um, I do hope that employers are going to reach deeper into the pool. And I think in this regard, it's a really great thing that the government has tried to, I think, get the ball rolling a bit um, with, for example, treating graduates diploma holders uh, on the same scheme. Maybe we could do a bit more in that regard because I think there are still widely held perceptions that there's a scholar, non-scholar gap, for example, but I think we have to take things uh, one step at a time. Thank you. Um, we have time for one more question, so if there's anyone who wants to say? Over there, yes, please. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this chance to make a comment. Um, Mr. Thieu actually raised the case of Tay, who actually was vastly different from his brother, and he was a drug addict. And this, we can see that he is into bad company. And we need to know, find out how bad company actually affects a person and keeps him perpetually in the underclass. And we also see that um, Professor Walter mentioned that a person who is poor makes poor decision. And he is more prone to be uh, you know, susceptible to the influence of the bad company. So I would urge that we would pay attention to the influence of the underworld, uh, who is actually um, affecting and influencing the poor, and how they are being kept in this vicious cycle uh, of you know, a perpetual poverty and being drawn into from the underclass to the underworld. Thank you. Um, I think there was also one other question at the back. Maybe we'll just take that and then we'll turn it back to the panelists. Was there someone there? Yes. Manu here too? Yeah. Yeah, that gentleman Ma Manu there. is, Hi. if it's possible, uh, here. Thank you for giving uh, me this. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, thank you. I'll keep my question short. So, um, uh, thank you for sharing. So, um, I agree with uh, Professor Walter Nasera uh, that um, when it comes to the economics, a lot of the things like, say, minimum wage or welfare, um, the results are mixed. But what I observe from Singapore government standpoint is that 
um, there are a lot of times whereby uh, the government take a very ideological approach when it comes to issues, um, say the issue of welfare. Um, there are actually academics who have ob actually observed that anti-welfareism has actually become a de facto ideology of Singapore, despite late Mr. Lee Kuan Yew saying that Singapore has is built on no ideology. So my question is directed to Minister Josephine Tiu that um, what will be your response to this kind of situation? Is it true that Singapore is really moving towards a ideological approach when it comes to certain economic issues that are supposed to, whereby the decision is supposed to based on statistics uh, instead of ideology? Thank you. Okay, I think uh, John Bridgerton wanted to ask a question. We should let him have it. Both uh, John Biddleston, Terrific Mentors International, both uh, speakers have pointed out in their own way that the government is going to have to raise money to deal with our social future. And I just want to ask if they realize that if you squeeze the olive, you get valuable oil, but if you squeeze the pear, you get egg on your face. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Okay, I think we're running out of time, so maybe I'll turn to Minister Teo and Professor Walter for their final comments. Uh, can I just respond quickly to the lady, I didn't get her name, uh, who talked about the need uh, to intervene uh, in different ways and help to ensure that people are not trapped uh, in whatever circumstances they find themselves. Uh, I think one of the ways in which we must do so is to ensure that there is a good level of social mixing. And social mixing not just in schools, but also in, where, in the places that we live in. In other words, um, in our immediate neighbourhood, in our immediate environment, there must be different norms that people can observe. And it's not just the, the same kind of norms that are not always helpful to them. And I want to relate one experience to say how challenging it is to, to do so. Uh, some years ago, uh, in the area where I serve, HDB approached me to say that there is a site um, within an eight, uh, a, a couple of blocks of, uh, about 10 blocks of HDB flats, and this particular site is about the right size for them to develop a rental block. So I didn't think it was an issue. I said to HDB, by all means, go ahead and build this HDB rental block. Um, as the block was being built, I went on a walkabout one morning and a gentleman called me to the breakfast table and said, uh, Mrs. Steele, I want to have a chat with you. I said, sure, sir, what is it that you want to talk to me about? And he asked me, he says, uh, you are our MP, right? I said, yes, as far as I can recall. <laughs> uh, he says, how come, uh, how come uh, you all build this HDB block? Uh, you didn't ask us, didn't ask us, didn't have a consultation. So I asked him, I said, um, can you elaborate a little bit more, or can you explain to me why you think that this is not a very good idea? And he said to me, he says, it's a rental block, you know. I said, yes, I'm aware of it. So he said, shouldn't you have done consultation? Shouldn't you have held a town hall with uh, us residents living here? I was a little bit caught by surprise, and I asked him uh, in return, I asked him, I said, 
um, sir, if you don't mind me asking, if we were building four-room flats or five-room flats, do I need to hold a town hall or a consultation? Now, to my great relief, he kept quiet. And I think he understood the point and he didn't want to press the matter further. But I raise this as an example of how difficult it is for us to bring about social mixing. Uh, it calls on each one of us to look at uh, the matter in a more open-hearted way. And somewhere at the back of our heads, always remembering that each one of us has to chip in. This whole topic, issue, challenge of dealing with inequality is not something that can be entirely addressed by policy tweaks, what you do in education, what you do in employment. Each one of us has to make the differences matter less. And unless we are able to do so, unless we find it in each of ourselves to make that forward movement, I don't think that we will be able to make progress. So I think that's a challenge that uh, is well worth us thinking about. Now, um, I didn't also get the gentleman's name who talked about uh, ideology. Uh, quite the contrary. Um, I don't think we adopt an ideological approach. The whole subject of uh, minimum wage uh, forgets another aspect. We have not been shy to introduce not one minimum wage, but a minimum wage ladder, you know, in, in some sectors where we think that it makes very good sense to do so, where the wages have stagnated, where the bargaining power is very low for the workers. In another regard, uh, from time to time it has been discussed that perhaps unemployment insurance should be introduced in order to provide a sort of a, net, uh, a support system for those who find themselves out of work. Uh, again, I don't want to belabor the point, it's been discussed in Parliament before, we are not ideologically opposed to it, it's not a crazy idea, it's a question of how practical it is and whether at this point in time a unemployment insurance will be well accepted by the entire paying population and the assessment is that perhaps not quite yet. There may well come a time where the, the likelihood of each one of us becoming unemployed become becoming very high, then each one of us can see ourselves contributing to unemployment insurance. If and when that time comes, I don't think it is quite so easy for us to say we oppose an idea like that. So I want to reassure you, um, it's, not, it's not the government's way of thinking um, to adopt um, uh, an ideological stance. I think we adopt a practical approach and that's always been the way that, uh, you know, that has guided us. Hey, I think um, the, the first point on um, social mixing, concentrations of, concentrations of poverty, that's a very important one because I think in any society which allows a great concentration of poverty, uh, you almost inevitably seem to have um, a lot of counterproductive behaviors develop. But I want to say at the same time that it's very important not to stigmatize the poor because the facts are rich people get bad ideas from mixing from, with other rich people all the time as well, right? So, I mean, so, so that's the reality of it, right? Um, uh, yeah, so, so, so for example, um, what are some bad ideas rich people get from mixing with other rich people? You may have cronyism, we want to avoid crony capitalism. You may also get just the simple, uh, you know, keeping up with the Joneses kind of effect. You have people buying more and more clothes, bigger and bigger houses and cars for no reason other than to impress other rich people. So clearly this is a bad idea for society. Um, but the general point is, you know, both rich and poor people are capable of make, making bad decisions. 
what I'm trying to say is that the circumstances the poor find themselves in, uh, unfortunately, uh, makes it easier for them to fall into making bad decisions just because they are very stressed with the day-to-day -day demands of living under poverty. That's, I think, the takeaway message from that. Um, I think on ideology, yeah, so I'm not in government, right, so I'm not going to, to comment directly on this, but I do want to point out that um, not having an ideology is actually an ideology of its own. Um, that's one point. <laughs> and I think the, the other point is um, ideology isn't always a bad thing necessarily. I think the good thing about it is that people know what you stand for. And I think um, if a government adopts a no ideology stance, it has to make sure that it communicates uh, a consistent policy position and a consistent set of principles. That's very important as a substitute for, you know, some kind of defined ideology. Um, there was also a last point, I think, on, on pairs and olives, but I, I think the general point there was just that, of course, you have to be very careful of how you want to remold the income distribution of the society because any attempt to do that may have unintended consequences, and yes, you, you do want to get something productive out of it, whether it's oil or juice, okay? Right. Thank you. Um, I'm afraid we have run out of time, and I need to bring this to a conclusion. I guess the main takeaway for me is that it's clear that the government has stepped up the pace of policy responses to address inequality, uh, and it's chosen to do so through emphasizing high-quality growth and selected and uh, targeted interventions. Uh, but the world is changing, and research, such as what uh, Walter has pointed out, suggests that there probably needs a need for new modes of policy intervention over time, and it's very encouraging that we've been um, assured by Minister Teo that the government will not be ideological about this, but will be very practical, but also keep a close eye on unintended uh, consequences. So with that, let me ask you to uh, congratulate our panelists for two brilliant presentations. Thank you.